The year is 1953. Dwight D. Eisenhower is inaugurated as president. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. The Academy Awards are first broadcast on television. Here in the Pantages tonight is the world's most glamorous audience, nearly 3,000 strong, all waiting to see the Oscars handed out. The Korean War ends. And in a small corner of the country, a group of community leaders and volunteers decide that they need a hospital of their own. This is Overheard from Overlake Medical Center, a healthy dose of stories about award-winning, compassionate, and patient-centered care. Our care is all about you. It wasn't easy building Overlake. Molly Stearns, Chief Development Officer at Overlake, tells it best. Overlake is unique in the degree to which the community really did have a lot to do with its founding. In the early days, we're talking late 1950s, where there was a growing realization that we needed a community hospital of quality on this side of the bridge. It wouldn't be here without the community and the support and the philanthropy. The residents took it upon themselves, and we are talking grassroots organizing. There were penny jars in local businesses. There were doctors who were organizing. There were civic leaders who were pooling land parcels together, all orchestrated together towards creating a hospital that would meet the needs of this growing east side. It takes seven years to gather funding and build. But on Sunday, October 16, 1960, Overlake Medical Center opens its doors. Five hours earlier than planned, I should add, so that Rose Sitzprin can give birth to her daughter, Catherine Kathy Mary. The day Kathy is born, there are 56 beds in the hospital. A lot has changed since then. It feels like every day a new building is going up, a new company is moving in, new families are becoming a part of the Bellevue community. But there's still a long way to go. Long before a group of Washingtonians thought to build their own hospital, before the Academy Awards, before the Korean War, before even the notion of Korea or nations or borders or countries, there was disease. Earth, famine, disease, and death. Of course, there's more in between. There's happiness and life and love, but at the end comes death. And for a long time, the reason for that death was a mystery. What controlled a human being, what made lumps or bumps appear, made a healthy person grow weak, was left up to conjecture and hope. On this podcast, we'll be taking a step back in time, highlighting the people who pushed that mystery forward, inch by inch. And we'll be speaking to current healthcare professionals about how medical care has changed and continues to evolve. So, for this, our inaugural episode of Overheard, we wanted to go a little broader. Like, as broad as you can while still looking at a disease. Let's talk about cancer. So, the common cancers would be breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, um, some esophageal cancers, renal cell cancers, some lymphomas and leukemias. So, lots of different types of cancer. That's Dr. Christy Harrington a breast cancer surgeon and medical director of cancer services at Overlake. 
Cancer is the second leading cause of death in the world after cardiovascular diseases. Approximately 39.6% of men and women will be diagnosed with cancer during their lifetime. There isn't a person out there who hasn't been touched by cancer in some way or another. And this isn't a new phenomena. The oldest description of cancer, although the word isn't used, is in an ancient Egyptian textbook on trauma surgery called the Edwin Smith Papyrus. It dates back to around 1600 BCE and describes eight cases of tumors or ulcers of the breasts that were removed by cauterization with a tool called a fire drill. Even in those eight cases where the tumor or ulcer was removed, it wouldn't have cured them. Only surface tumors could be removed, and the remaining cancer cells would likely continue to grow, divide, and redivide, forming more growths in tumors. At least 39 mummies with cancer have been identified. Imagine being alive in that time. Imagine finding a bump one day while at home, or having a loved one pointed out. You're worried, and head to a physician if you can afford one. They offer to cut it out, but tell you, even then, you should start preparing for the end. The gods have cursed you, have caused this illness. There's nothing they can do. Christopher Tracy is a current cancer patient at Overlake. Well, it was kind of surprising. In fact, I think it surprised everyone. I had returned from a trip to Alaska, and both my wife and I immediately got bad colds. But about three weeks later, our colds were gone, and my wife's cough was gone, but my cough was not. So finally, we had a uh, chest x-ray, and the chest x-ray showed a shadow. And my physician and I agreed that "Mm, it would be just fine to go in and have a uh, CAT scan. And the CAT scan is what showed the uh, tumor in my right lung. Christopher was confused and scared. He'd been warned off of smoking all of his life, been told that it would turn his lungs gray and that it would cause tumors to grow and end with a hole in his throat. And he'd taken it to heart. He'd done everything he'd been told he should. He'd exercised and ate healthfully and stayed away from cigarettes and drugs. And yet, here he was, with lung cancer. It felt like a curse from the gods, something he had no control over. Thankfully, his treatment options weren't as grim. After all of the diagnosis uh, had been completed, in mid-October, I had surgery. And uh, the overleg surgeon removed two lobes of my right lung. And that's kind of where we made the decisions for further treatment as well. I met both with a radiation oncologist, uh, Dr. Reese, and also with a medical oncologist to kind of come up with a plan for uh, what we would do going forward. And the decision was made uh, by me and my doctors that we would probably do a pretty aggressive plan. And because my health was generally quite good before I had all of this happen to me, we decided on a plan that included concurrent radiation and chemotherapy, which meant that I was going to go in to the hospital basically every day for radiation treatment. And then I also had uh, pretty extensive chemotherapy, two rounds. And at Overlake Hospital, there's the chemotherapy suite, which is pretty new, and it's staffed with, quite frankly, some of the most amazing, compassionate, wonderful nurses anyone has ever, ever seen. And it didn't make any difference which nurse I had. Sometimes they would tag team and work together, um, but they worked together so well 
it is probably one of the finest uh, groups or teams that I've ever seen work together in the infusion lab. So right now, I would say I, I'm in remission and in doing follow-up treatment at Overlake on a regular basis. He was lucky to be born in the time he was. For his Egyptian friend and for a long time afterwards, that help wasn't an option. Hippocrates, a Greek physician who lived from 460 to 370 BCE, attempted to build on Egyptian theories of cancer care and treatment. He defined cancer as a special category of diseases caused by an imbalance of the humors. The humors were four different types of body fluid, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. An imbalance of any of these fluids would result in disease, and an excess of black bile would cause cancer. Treatment was based on the patient's individual humoral balance and consisted of diet, bloodletting, and laxatives. For patients considered too ill, he simply suggested palliative care and giving notice of the condition to the patient's relatives. These would be considered the normal treatment options for cancer for over 1,300 years. It isn't until the Renaissance that our knowledge of cancer really begins to evolve. Autopsies become a more acceptable part of medical research, which allows physicians to study the circulatory system, organs, and muscles. It's also when Italian anatomist Giovanni Morgagani lays the foundation for scientific oncology. The idea that most diseases are not dispersed throughout the body through, say, an excess of black bile, but instead originate locally, in specific organs and tissues. Thus begins a comparably rapid rise in the research of cancer treatments. In the 18th century, Scottish surgeon John Hunter suggests that as long as a cancerous tumor hasn't reached nearby tissue, it might be possible to remove it. And then the invention of modern anesthesia in the 19th century makes that surgery a feasible form of treatment. In 1896, Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen, a German mechanical engineer and physicist, developed the X-ray. And three years later, radiation was first used for cancer diagnosis and in treatment. And then after that comes hormonal therapy, and then chemotherapy, and immunotherapy, and so many more types of treatments, branching and twisting from the Edwin Smith papyrus, from Giovanni Morgagani, from John Hunter, even from Hippocrates, though without the bloodletting and laxatives, thankfully. And cancer care and treatment is still evolving, still changing and twisting, making new paths and laying new foundations. Dr. Harrington has noticed these changes just in the 15 years she's been practicing. When I first started doing this about 15 years ago, there were certain sort of criteria that we used to say, well, this woman's going to need chemotherapy after she has surgery. And those criteria have completely changed. And the reason is because now we're doing these essentially molecular profiling tests on tumors, and we can actually predict whether or not a patient is going to need more than just, say, in the case of breast cancer, um, hormone blocking agents. Whereas in the past, it was like any woman with a tumor bigger than one centimeter in size was almost always gonna get chemotherapy. Well, now we may have a tumor that's two or three centimeters in size and be able to do a test that says, look, that woman's not gonna benefit from chemotherapy. We shouldn't give it. So I think we're getting better at really defining different criteria to use in treatment decisions. It's really evidence-based. And I think that's really exciting. It's incredible how quickly cancer treatment is evolving, but that doesn't mean there's not room to grow. 
There are some kind of cancers that we still don't have good chemotherapy or biological agents for, like pancreatic cancer, for instance. But Dr. Harrington is hopeful for the future. It's not just treatments themselves that are evolving, but the way in which we look at medicine, that we interact with our doctors and care centers. I'm really hopeful about developing here at Overlake an increasingly sort of two-way street or avenue for communication between the patient and their family and the doctor. It's much less the paternalistic society that it used to be where patients came in and they were told what to do, right? It's much more now a two-way street where the patient and the doctor, the patient and the family member, their support system and the doctor work on a plan together that's evidence-based but meets the patient's goals in terms of treatment. But I think we need to get better when we reach the point where maybe treatment's not making a difference. And there's always the question of do we do more or do we stop? And bettering the communication around those points of care is really important. Because I think a lot of times there's those questions that people are afraid to ask, but it's really kind of like the elephant in the room. And I look forward to those conversations getting easier and people really being able to say, these are my concerns, these are my worries. What can we do about that? The fact of the matter is, is that some patients don't survive their cancer diagnosis. But even when they don't, we can treat them. We can help them. We may be able to help them with symptoms. And I, I think that there's a lot of work to be done there, too. Dr. Harrington isn't developing these strategies alone. Tom DeBoard, Overlake's chief operating officer, is dedicated to making sure Overlake is prepared for the future. Project Future Care ultimately is a board-approved $270 million expansion of our campus. And the cancer center is phase one, which we're really excited about, and is now done. It brings our medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, uh, our infusion center, our radiation center, breast health center, our breast surgeons, all under one roof. So everything was designed with the patients in mind. Where in the past, we had multiple physicians' offices, uh, different locations for breast services versus our infusion center versus our radiation center. And now we have it all in one location, which we're really excited about. We also have a really active and vibrant social work team that helps our patients sort of navigate their cancer journey. I think that's a really important part of our, of our program. They're great team members. They're real patient advocates. They help with a lot of communication things. We also have um, specialized physical therapists and speech and occupational therapists. We have a physical therapy department right in our cancer center, which is pretty unique. We have a, um, a registered dietitian solely for our cancer center. She's currently meeting patients while they're receiving chemotherapy so that she can talk to them about dietary concerns because a lot of patients are very concerned about, boy, my eating habits are really altered during my cancer treatment. How do I support myself? What are things that I should really be trying to do? So I think she's a fabulous resource. We're really lucky to have somebody right in our center. It is huge. Tom has been working on Project Future Care for three years. In fact, it's the first thing he did when he started at Overlake, gathering funding and resources and watching Overlake build and grow, just like those community members did so long ago, all the way back in 1953. It was apparent in Tom, Christy, and Chris's interviews how much they love Overlake how excited they are by what they get to do and the community they're surrounded by. 
And I think when it comes down to it, that love is a result of how aware they are of the path Overlake is on, and of the path it's helping to create. Overlake exists because the founders of the hospital, residents of Bellevue long ago, didn't want to travel across the bridge and go into Seattle to get cancer care. And so we really are a community hospital. We were built by the residents of Bellevue. And when you look at some of the other cancer centers in the greater Seattle area, they've always had this more regional mission, right? And Overlake has stayed fairly close to home, and it's only in the last 10 years or so that we've really started to develop more far-reaching neighborhood clinics. We now have clinics in Kirkland and Redmond and Issaquah and Sammamish, and so we're, we're getting a farther-reaching umbrella, but I think a lot of times people think of us just because we're geographically small or smaller doesn't mean we're small potatoes. You know, even just standing outside of Overlake and looking at downtown Bellevue, you know, 20 years ago, the PACAR headquarters was the largest building in downtown Bellevue. You know, now you look at it and you see the dozens of 20, 30-story buildings that literally 20 years ago were not there. The same thing was Overlake's campus. I hear the stories about the very first building. We had one building on Overlake's campus that was kind of surrounded by cow pastures and other things. And then now you look at this campus, we have five or six buildings. We're adding, obviously, our new East Tower. And the campus continues to evolve exactly as Bellevue is evolving. And so I feel really excited about the fact that we've been able to, over the years, match the growth of the community with the healthcare services that are offered here on our campus. And we're continuing to do that going into the future. Community is what built Overlake. It's what got all those people together on a Sunday in October to unveil a hospital where they could feel comfortable a place they could think of as theirs. And it's still them, pushing Tom and Christy forward. It's Chris, choosing to receive care there. And it's you, listening to this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this first episode of Overheard from Overlake. If you did, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And subscribe so you can hear more episodes as soon as they're available. I'm your host, Sarah Leibovitz. We are produced by Twisted Scholar in partnership with Large Media. Next time on Overheard, we'll explore what we keep secret with pelvic health specialist Julie Lacombe and bariatric surgeon Tian Wen. There's a well-known statistic across my specialty that the average woman will suffer approximately six years before they seek treatment. This is Overheard from Overlake Medical Center a healthy dose of stories about award-winning medical professionals and patient-centered care for the East Side. Overlake Medical Center, compassionate care for every life we touch.